Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk again to Professor Joel Hayward. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me back. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Most welcome. And for those who don't re remember from before, Joel is a New Zealand slash British scholar, uh, an author who currently serves as Professor of Strategic Thought at the Rabdan Academy in the United Arab Emirates. And Joel has earned Ijazat, that's teaching authorizations in Akida, otherwise known as Islamic theology, and the Sira, that's the prophet's biography. He has held various academic leadership posts, including director of the Institute for International and Civil Security at Khalifa University in the UAE, head of air power studies at King's College here in London, and dean of the Royal Air Force College, both in the UK. He is the author or editor of 17 books, and that number seems to be increasing all the time, uh, and major monographs and dozens of peer-reviewed articles, mainly in the fields of strategic studies, military history, the Islamic ethics of war and conflict, and Islamic, especially 7th century, and Western, especially 20th century history. There's a very comprehensive uh, areas there. His recent books include Warfare in the Quran, published 2012, War is Deceit, an analysis of continuous hadith, contentious, I should say, contentious hadith on the morality of military deception in 2017, and The Leadership of Muhammad, a historical reconstruction. The latter won the prestigious prize of Best International Nonfiction Book at the 2021 Sajjar International Book Awards. And Professor Hayward has given strategic advice to political and military leaders in several countries and given policy advice to prominent sheikhs and was tutor to our Prince William of Wales, the Duke of Cambridge. Professor Hayward is also active in the literary arts and has published three books of fiction and four collections of Islamic poetry. Now, today, Joel has kindly uh, come on Blogging Theology to share his knowledge and expertise and to talk about war and religion, the Western and Islamic traditions. Now, I've been asked to state that Professor Hayward is not speaking as an employee of the Rabdan Academy, the National Defense College of the UAE, or any other organization. His views are exclusively his own, and he offers them in a personal capacity. So as I say, Joe is going to be talking today about war and religion, the Western and Islamic traditions. So over to you, Joe. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here again, Paul. Um, it's a strange thing to talk about war, but I seem to have done it for the last 30 years. Wow. Uh, I, I made my career the study of, of war, uh, not because I find war a very nice thing. Clearly, it's not. War is undoubtedly the worst of human activities, but it is probably the oldest collective activity and indeed, it's the oldest, it's, well, it's the event or the action or the activity for which we have the oldest historical records, even older than records of taxation. We have records of kings or pharaohs conquering other people and boasting about their martial prowess. So 
we actually know an awful lot about war. Um, the records for war are voluminous. They cover every century of uh, human existence. We don't have a century without war. Um, and it, it, it has probably killed innumerable humans on a scale only equivalent to great scourges and pandemics. Mm. That's true. So, I mean, my, my first question was, uh, how do, does the Western philosophical tradition known as the just war theory evolve and what does it include? Well, we have a long tradition in the West and it's, uh, in some ways, it's a rather lovely tradition. The, the ancient Romans uh, started as a small city-state and then they expanded fairly quickly from roughly 500 BC and by about the time of the first century BC, the time of Julius Caesar, they had expanded dramatically across the Mediterranean and had an empire that covered the entire Mediterranean and the Near East and were expanding uh, through what's Gaul, modern France, um, right to the English Channel and, and Caesar attempted to go beyond that mm. to Britain itself. That needed a lot of explaining because a civilized state doesn't like to see itself as a warlike, warlike state. And philosophically, the Greeks before the Romans had wrestled with this issue of how do we as a civilized philosophical people uh, still go to war and seem to do it an awful lot. And the Romans developed a fairly complex and sophisticated way, it's a twisty way really, of, of saying, well, okay, we go to war offensively, but our logic is that in fact we are defending the city, at Rome itself, and the people. And the logic is that it's better to fight them there, meaning on the frontiers of the border, the frontiers of the empire, than to allow uh, enemies in and to have to fight them here. And so the Romans were almost on a continuous expansion, which they philosophically justified as self-defense, <laughs> saying, well, right. there, are enemies, there are enemies out there. We know they will come. Um, they will see what we have and what we have accomplished. They will want it. So we have a duty to the Roman people offensively to protect them by being on the continuous offensive. Well, that, that's a license. And the first great thing. Sorry. So I was going to say that that effect is a license to conquer the whole planet, basically, isn't it? Because there's always going to be some, some threat, some enemy, some envious group of people who might pose a threat in theory. So we must conquer them as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and more or less, that's what happened. By the time of Julius Caesar, there was something like, I think, around 39 individual legions fighting on land all over the empire, each with about 6,000 soldiers. They had a vast, vast, vast Mediterranean fleet um, to exert power and to project power um, against the people in North Africa, right through to uh, the Straits of Gibraltar at one end um, and to the Dardanelles at the other end and even beyond. And the Romans, again, justified this philosophically. They have great writers like Cicero um, explaining this as a kind of a defensive uh, action. Well, that's all good and well, except then what happened was uh, in the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian. Well, at least he, if he doesn't become a Christian initially, he at least tolerates Christianity, which had been a suppressed religion, and then indeed makes it the state religion. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the problem. Christianity until then had largely been pacifistic. That is that the Christians had read the book of Matthew, 
which said those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that's Matthew 26, 52. Even going back to the Old Testament, <laughs> thou shalt not murder and the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Turn the other cheek, Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. That's Matthew 5, 39, uh, and so on. Love their enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's in Luke 6, 27. So for the first 200 or 300 years, Christians were essentially pacifistic. They were oppressed by the Roman state and famously uh, refused to resist that oppression and in a very kind of Gandhian fashion believed in, in, in suffering, that suffering uh, and becoming martyrs for the religion was better than taking up violence against the wishes of Christ. Well, that's great, except that when the state becomes Christian in the fourth century, they need people to fight. They've still got this massive empire to defend. They still need to recruit people for the legions. And with increasing numbers of the Roman population becoming Christian, you have to get those Christians willing to fight. And so there was a kind of a twisting done by some of the early theologians, like Ambrose, who was from Milan, um, famous uh, Augustine of Hippo, who was from uh, North Africa, from uh, from modern, Algeria, modern Algeria, I think it is. Maybe. Modern Algeria. Or, or Tunisia. And, and so, uh, Tunisia or Algeria, but anyway, sorry. And so you had these writers hmm. um, effectively saying uh, what Christ was talking about, in fact, was a, was a personal violence mainly, and that the permission to defend your loved ones, in fact, was a very solemn responsibility. For example, the father in the house has the right to defend the children of the house if a, a looter or a robber breaks in and wants to do violence. In fact, it's a solemn responsibility yeah. to protect the family. And so extrapolating that, um, these theologians tried to kind of create a, a permissiveness that allowed military, military violence. And that all continued uh, with, with the theologians um, through to the time, of course, of the great Augustine of Hippo, and then uh, Thomas Aquinas. Mm. Um, Aquinas wrote something like an encyclopedia volume of the summary of all human knowledge. Yeah. And in this, he elaborates on the, 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 the Christian imperative um, to fight for just causes yes. and begins to develop a, a framework for understanding how, in fact, justice might be served through armed violence. And, of course, that's what warfare is. Warfare is organized armed violence. Um, you can't take the violence out of warfare. And so Aquinas, who's writing in the 1200s, um, develops a very complex theory that allows the use of force by Christians who in civil society would never dream of harming a fly. Then, of course, you get... Soon after that, in the 14, end of the 1400s, beginning of the 1500s, the European expansion to the Americas. Yeah. And this <clears throat> comes at the end of what's called the Reconquista, the mm. conquest of Spain, taking that back from the, the Muslims, which finished in 1492. And suddenly you've got all these Christian uh, conquistadores going to the New World, and they're encountering a people that have no knowledge of Christianity, uh, or no knowledge of monotheism. 
And so there's a great debate about whether they can be converted by force and mm. what type of violence might be done against them. Mm. And so you have people like Vittoria, Francisco de Vittoria, who was Spanish, um, talking about these sorts of issues and what the Christians can do and what force is permissible in terms of an evangelical spirit. Um, can we take the, the word of God to people, um, the Bible in one hand and the sword in the other? Then we go back to the Europeans and you get uh, uh, Hugo Grotius. And Grotius in the 1600s, he's a Dutchman. Mm. And, of course, the Dutch by this stage are beginning their own empire. This yeah. is the age of beginning of empires. In the Far East, I think it was Indonesia at one stage was ruled by the Dutch in a great empire. Absolutely. Mm. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons, or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. You, you know, you get these little tiny countries like Belgium and, and yeah. Holland that yeah. end up with an empire that's 500, 600 times bigger than exactly. the original state. It's kind of a bit, it's a bit strange for us. In England, of course, but, we get the time, yeah. <clears throat> and, and this all needs a bit of explaining. And so Grotius, Hugo Grotius, this Dutchman, is, is looking and saying, well, are all nations actually the same? Are all people the same? Are they worthy of the same consideration? Is there a community of nations that we might recognize and, and give them right, rights, for example, like the right to protect themselves and defend themselves? Because we have it. Should they also have it? And so there was a lot of discussion uh, about about whether there's a community of nations, and if so, what's the best way of upholding that community uh, of nations? Then, of course, you get the Treaty of Westphalia or the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, yeah. which creates this new concept that's held the world in spell since then: yeah. the concept of sovereignty, the belief that actually, well, you know, it, we shouldn't just continuously fight these exhausting wars because we don't like what someone else is doing in their country. If they're not hurting us, who cares what they do within their borders? It's their right to do it. And so that period, Hugo Grotius through to the modern world, is a period of great change in the way that states saw other states. Mm -hmm. And we get for the first time the belief that actually states have the right to defend themselves, just as you as a state have the right to defend yourself that you have a right to, for example, negotiate or to arbitrate um, the calling of third parties to help to mediate all so these the ideas. Of, of, of an international legal order, an international law, which is binding on all the, the parties involved, rather than just simply individual empires, 
bouncing off each other as, as a kind of international order that comes into being. And of course, what one could argue, and I think it's a good argument, that it's more honoured in the breach than in the observance. But that's a different matter. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, and I'll, and I'll come to that soon. So mm. you jump forward from that and you jump forward to um, Immanuel Kant and, and the other great German philosophers, again, all wrestling with these big issues. And throughout this period, this 2,000 years of evolving ideas on war, the philosophers seem to settle on two big categories uh, of argumentation about war. And one is, when should you go to war? When is it permissible to, as a state to go to war? And then the second category is how to fight it once you're in war. And, of course, Europeans are fond of using Latin phrases for everything. Oh. And so they catch these two categories um, in Latin as well. You had use ad bellum, mm. which is a Latin phrase for justice towards war, justice going into war. And that's a whole criteria of explaining to a leader, for example, yep. philosophically when it's right to go <clears> to war. <throat> yep. what, what, you know, for what cause can you go to war? And then the second category is usum uh, bellum, and usum bellum means justice during war. Yeah. And so the Christian philosophers, because they were all still Christian at this stage, yeah. developed this very complex set of ideas. For example, usad bellum, the laws or the rules going into war, you had to have what's called a, a, a just cause. Mm. And it was universally agreed that a just cause could be, would be self-defense. Mm. But, but that's limiting because most of the times when you feel you want to go to war, it's actually when you see someone doing something to someone else as opposed to them doing it to you. Mm. And so they had to then attach to that uh, a concept called right intention. Right. For example, uh, you, you may go to war offensively, but you still have to have the right intention. And the right intention was ordinarily cast as to create a better state of peace, which meant that you had to leave things better at the end than they were when you commenced. Right. And then you had what was called legitimate authority. And this actorius principis, it's called in Latin, means that you have to have war declared by the legitimate authority of a state. Right. And states had emerged by this stage as being the principal actor in international relations. And it had to be, for example, the king. Um, and for most of that period, there were kings or emperors. Um, or it could be in the modern world, a prime minister or a president. Mm. But it had to be a legitimate authority who could make war and not a warlord or not merely the leader of or the army a, or of the just country. A, a vigilante group who decides to take up arms and commit acts of war. And that would be classified today as terrorism, of course. But if it's done by the state, by the sovereign, the king, the president, uh, then that has a, a legitimacy, at least in terms of that one criteria anyway. The right person is initiating the war. <clears throat> I think that's right. I mean, it's very difficult because, it, for example, when you take the French in the beginning of their French Revolution, so let's go to say the the, the early seventeen nineties. Uh, yeah. You have a committee 
ruling France yes. that believes it's representing the people. And you have uh, Marat and you have Robespierre and others. Mm. No one in the world thought they were legitimate. In fact, the world went to war against them. <laughs> we are the legitimate leaders of the state. And yet there were seven great coalitions over the next 20 years against the French based on this perceived illegitimacy. And even Napoleon, when he becomes the emperor in 1804, he's still seen as, as illegitimate by the non-French. And so what's legitimate for the people may not be legitimate for their neighbors. And so if you take someone like Hitler, for example, he's elected in 1933 in a mixed member proportional, proportional system. Um, as a chancellor, a year later, he replaces Hindenburg as, the, as the, the president as well, combines those titles as the Fuhrer. Uh, we all said he's illegitimate. But to the German people, he's their legitimate leader in every sense, perhaps not for all of them, quite clearly, but for the majority. Mm. So there are very complex issues about what, is a legitimate authority. And in Islam, we'll come to this soon, mm. this, is, this is one of the, the, the very big questions about, about who can make war. Can I, as a Muslim, declare jihad? Mm. Can I go and fight jihad on my own initiative yeah. if yeah. no one's declared it? Because I believe there's a jihad to be fought. Can I? Mm. These are big questions. <clears throat> yeah. But the last thing I think is quite curious about, about going to war justly is what's called probability of success. Mm. And the logic behind this is a leader hasn't uh, got the right to take his people to war if it's likely that they will lose. Yes, it's not just the ability to go to war and the right authority declaring that they can go to war. There has to be a good chance of success. Uh, so the outcome of the military action is also a factor on whether or not the war is just, which is interesting because it's not always how we think of things. So it, it has to be wisdom in it, not just the ability to wage war. There has to be an understanding that the consequences may actually be worse for all parties concerned, even though you'll be right to do so technically, even though you have the ability and the right authority is legitimizing it. If the outcome is very, very uncertain and the consequences could be dire as a result, then it's not a just war, I suppose. That would be the argument. That's the argument. And, you, you know, Winston Churchill faced this dilemma in 1940. He became prime minister uh, in May 1940 at a time when uh, the Germans have defeated everybody in the previous mm. Yeah, they defeated the, the Poles pretty easily and the Danes and the Norwegians and, and the uh, then the, the, the French, the Belgians, the Dutch. And then, of course, they defeat the British forces in France, push them to the beaches at Dunkirk. They evacuate the army back from Dunkirk to Britain without all their heavy weapons in Britain. This island that's now standing alone against an invincible force, as it seemed, logically, therefore, should have tried to make a peace with Hitler. That would have been a logic from the just war theory, <clears throat> because to persist with war was likely to result in the defeat of the British and perhaps even the occupation of Britain and the enslavement of the British people. 
And so there's a calculation, isn't there, in the minds of the leaders, not only about when you're going to do violence against your enemy, but when you're going to expose your own people to the risk of violence being done to them. And Churchill made a very nuanced calculation uh, that actually, if we persevere, we might just prevail. And that was a pretty unlikely situation. But as it eventuated, the British with the, uh, its empire, later with the Americans, and most of all with the Soviets, were able to defeat Hitler. So and that was his calculation. Yeah, the, his crucial desire was to get America involved in the war because obviously America was even stronger than Germany in that sense. If you get, only get America into the war on Britain's side, then there was a chance. And, and uh, there, there was these apparently frantic communications between him and Roosevelt or something privately, uh, and the initial reluctance of the Americans to get involved, a whole bunch of reasons. But ultimately they did, and that turned the tide, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the, those are the categories. That's the, the kind of the philosophy of when a leader can go to war. Now, I, I stress that this is a philosophy, just war, which is called ballum, eustum in Latin. Just war is a philosophy. It's not a set of laws. It's not a set of rules that kings and presidents and prime ministers ever had to keep. It was presented as a framework of philosophical advice for them to reflect on. And, and, and so it, it tended, I think, to have rather limited impact right. for most of the last 2,000 years. But yeah. the second category of war, which is how to fight a war justly once you're in it, for whatever reason you've gone to war, how do you make sure that your soldiers, um, and now your uh, seamen and your airmen as well, yeah. fight cleanly and honorably? Yeah. And, and that's pretty important. How do you do that? So the second body of, of philosophy deals with that. And, uh, and that's based around two principal ideas. The first is which is called discrimination. Now, discrimination in an ordinary spoken sense is something pretty bad. It means, oh, I don't like this people for this, the color of their skin or, or for their religious views or something. But philosophically, Discrimination just means the separation out of those whom it's permissible to harm and those whom it isn't. Mm. It just means the separation. So on the one hand, you'll have what's called combatants, and combatants are legitimate targets. On the other hand, you'll have civilians and other non-combatants. And the two things aren't synonyms, non-combatants and civilians. Non-combatants can be, for example... Uh, the wounded. Or the prisoners of war and six soldiers. Prisoners of war. Yeah, you just can't kill them because they're soldiers. They're, they're, they're not fighting you. But combatants who are not sick or, you know, whatever, are, are targets, I suppose. So, so there's a great deal of philosophy, a, a lot of mental <clears throat> exertion, exhausted on who these people are. So, for example, let's talk about 1940 again. The height of the Battle of Britain, so let's jump forward to, say, September 1940. Yeah. You've got Smith and you've got Spitfires dogfighting through the skies above southern England. It's all very biggles and exciting stuff. I grew up on this. <laughs> yeah. There are lots of films showing you just that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so let's say that one second you're in your Spitfire mm-hmm. and you're 19 years old and ahead of you there's a, a, a German bomber. 
and you're hell-bent on shooting down that bomber. It's legitimate to do so. That's a combatant aircraft with three, four, five Germans who are trying to do your state harm. So you squeeze on your trigger and your bullets shoot down that aircraft, at which point you notice the crew have parachuted out and are descending slowly on parachutes. Can you? Can you turn your Spitfire back and open fire on descending Germans with the parachutes. So, so this is a very complex issue. What, what's it, so, sorry, Joe, what, 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 what were the RAF's rules of engagement at that time? Could they, a pilot in the Spitfire, mm-hmm. have legitimately uh, shot at these guys in the parachutes or not? What were the rules of engagement at that time in the 1940s? Well, at, at the time, you see, there's a phrase, hors de combat, which is a French phrase, which means out of, out of the fight. Uh-huh. And it's the equivalent, for example, of a boxer. So you've got two boxers. One boxer hits the other boxer and he falls to the ground. At that moment, you have to step back to a neutral corner. You can't jump you on can't, him and come on him again. Kick him in the head because he's down. On and the and, and so right. during the Second World War, in fact, a few pilots, I have to say, did exactly that. They did fire on Germans and parachutes and they were socially shunned by their squadron. Wow. It was considered something shameful. Wow. It was considered quite wrong and very ungentlemanly and sportsmanlike. Wow. So as an unsportsmanlike act, wow. uh, it wasn't done. Right. And, and likewise, the other equivalent is something people don't think about. Let's say you are patrolling the fields of Kandahar. You're a British patrolman. And suddenly you draw fire from the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And you return fire. Mm. And you advance upon the Taliban, and the Taliban soldier drops his gun, his AK-47, and he puts his hands up. Mm. Mm. Immediately, his status has changed, his moral status. Within a second, he's gone from being a combatant to a non-combatant. Right. In a split second, the same person. But not as a civilian, because there's this further distinction. He's simply a combatant. a combatant who is a non-combatant, but not a civilian. No, he's a non-combatant. He can still be treated as a prisoner of war uh, in the military sense. Yeah. Right, exactly right. So with prisoners, for example, in, in this uh, set of, of ideas, you had to treat them decently. Mm. You had to feed them and you had to shelter them. And, and if they were wounded, it was gentlemanly to, to treat their wounds. Uh, and the other category with this concept of having justice during war mm. is what's called proportionality. Yes. And proportionality is in a, in a legal, well, in a philosophical sense, it was judged to be doing no more than what is necessary to make your success likely. Doing no more than what is necessary to make your success likely. So a country that has a nuclear weapon, for example, um, in an ordinary conventional war, wouldn't draw in its nuclear weapons. Mm. And likewise, if an army uh, has has 10,000 soldiers in battle against you and you have an army of 700,000, you're not going to throw them all in to, to make an extermination. That would be disproportionate. <clears throat> can I can I just um, offer a reflection at that very point about proportionality? 
uh, and the degree to which just war theory uh, came out of and relies on the Jewish and Christian scriptures, particularly the Jewish scriptures we've not spoken of so far, because th there are um, many passages in the Jewish scriptures, I'm thinking of one in particular, but it's not in any way unique, I'm afraid to say, which um, throws a very different perspective on how war was perceived um, at that time. Now, these, of course, are the Jewish scriptures. They're not necessarily the scriptures that Muslims believe originally given to the people of Israel, the original Torah, but nevertheless, they are in our modern Bibles. So I'm looking at the New Revised Standard Version. And almost a random example from the, the first book of Samuel, chapter 15, uh, headed here. I'll just read a couple of verses. Headed here, Saul, then Saul was the first king of Israel, defeats the Amalekites, who are the kind of the enemies of Israel, but spares their king. Uh, and it goes like this, and they mention Samuel. Samuel was a prophet. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord, this is, the, this is God of Israel, Yahweh in capital letters, that always means Yahweh. Yahweh sent me to anoint you king <clears throat> over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord, Yahweh. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And this is the crucial quote. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites, <clears throat> excuse me, when they came up out of Egypt. And this was two to three hundred years earlier on, by the way. So there was not an existential threat to Israel at all. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek, is another word for the Amalekites, and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Extraordinary list. I'm not quite sure why the animals are in there, but the point here is that this, to today's world, will of course be called a genocide. It's the, mm -hmm. there's no proportionality here. It is the total annihilation of a whole people. And, and that is the objective of this command. And what's particularly distressing about this story, apart from the genocide, of course, is the reason why the reason because Samuel goes on. I won't read the rest of it. But Saul disobeys this commandment and is removed from his position and status as king. Why? Because he spares the king of the Amalekites. And he exterminates everyone else. But because his obedience to this command was not as thoroughgoing and as ruthless as it should have been, uh, he was basically seen as rejected by God and, and he no longer had the capacity to rule Israel. That was the reason he was rejected, according to Samuel, a, pro a prophet of God. So and I, I said to you, this is far from being an exception. There are many accounts in the Jewish scriptures of God allegedly commanding the total destruction of whole people groups. Now, you may say, what's this relevance to anything? Well, it's in the scriptures, uh, and the West is founded on the Judeo-Christian tradition, as we're constantly being told. Um, and also, just war theory is not really evidence in that passage at all. And, um, oh, and you mentioned Aquinas developing this theory. Aquinas lived in the 13th century AD, this is literally thousands of years after these uh, alleged events with King 
saw literally thousands thousands of years millennia later so we had this huge span of time when we have these commandments to commit genocide to the the actual fleshing out of the just war tradition in the west and that of course brings in as you've said philosophical ideas borrowed from all sorts of sources from roman law aristotle as well as the christian tradition saint augustine of hippo you mentioned him already as an interesting synthesis which we see in typically in Aquinas, uh, who then bequeathed to subsequent centuries his just war theory, which is still the foundation, I think, of modern international order in some way. But I just wanted to mention, and also just one final point, by the way, about the New Testament, which you, um, you, you quoted some passages from Matthew and so on, where turn the other cheek, love your enemies, and so on. And they're there. But there are other passages which are often overlooked, which say something very, very different. And the, the most notorious elephant in the room, which is never often mentioned, uh, I don't know why, because it's like an elephant in the room, is the book of Revelation, where the same Jesus who said those things that you quoted in Matthew is now no longer a nice guy. He is now someone who also commands genocide of his enemies without any sense of, combatants, non-combatants, civilians. You can read the book. You can look up the passages. I don't mean you, uh, obviously, Joe, but uh, the viewers can, because uh, you know this better than I, I'm sure, but viewers can look up the passages in the book of Revelation, just Google them. Uh, Jesus there is portrayed as someone who commands the extermination of vast swathes of the human race. So he's no longer Mr. Nice Guy in the book of Revelation. And that book is in the New <laughs> Testament. <laughs> so it's complicated. what I'm trying to say is it's complicated. It's not homogenous. The biblical picture is has pacific passages, nice passages, and also genocidal passages. It's all mixed up together in this rather confusing melange of texts, in my view, anyway. Well, one of the interesting things is that in the second century, so a hundred years or so after Jesus, this is when they were starting to disseminate scriptures, Christian scriptures. And at that stage, the, the, the New Testament canon hadn't been solidified. That's right. It, didn't, it wasn't for hundreds of years. And in fact, Revelation is a latecomer. This is and true. it was only finally put in very late in the process. And so for the That's first... It's a really good period, point, actually. It's a very, very good... It's one of the latest books, along with two Peter, to actually get in the Bible, let alone... And some absolutely. Parts of the ...towards the 8th century in the East, was it finally kind of, because of tradition and being read in churches a lot, it became part of the canon. Absolutely right. Right, right. And so the Gospels were primarily read. Um, we don't know if all the Gospels or a Gospel. Um, and so those early pacifistic-seeming... I mean, you're, you're right. Jesus did say things. And he, he, he you know, tells his disciples, for example, to go and sell things and buy a sword mm. as he sends them out to do evangelism. Yep. Now, that's a strange thing. But to yep. go back to the Torah, to the, to mm, the Old please, Testament, please. to the Jewish Bible, I, 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 most people that grew up in the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition they know those great battles of the Bible. So they'll know all about, for example, um, the, the the walls of Jericho. It's a great miracle mm. by God. Mm. The children of Israel march around the city uh, seven times, blowing the trumpets and the walls fall down. Yeah. What they fail to mention is that the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 621, then says exactly what you said. It says that the children of Israel then entered Jericho 
and killed them all. It says they destroyed, I'll quote you actually, they destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And that's a very odd thing to include. But the, the, the story you mentioned about, about King Saul, mm. it's actually a mirror of something that happened at the time of the prophet Moses, the, the one we call uh, Musa, the prophet Musa. Musa, as you remember in the story, was uh, raised in Egypt and then fled into exile uh, into northern Arabia, into a province that we call Midian. Mm. People are called the Midianites. And there he found refuge with uh, a man uh, called Jethro, um, who was a priest of Midian, a priest, a religious man, mm. um, and married the daughter of the priest of Midian. We call him Shoaib, I think. The interesting thing is this. Moses' children were from a Midianite wife. Now, God speaks to, to Moses and says, go and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. So he goes back into Egypt, tells the Pharaoh, let my people go. There are all the plagues happening. Mm. And then the Pharaoh finally has enough and says, well, just go, blast it, go. And so Moses leads them out. The, the seas part. The Pharaoh pursues them. But they safely make it back to Midian. Now, here's the strange thing. What did God then do? I'll tell you what he did according to the Torah in the book of Numbers, in chapter 31. He says, now destroy the Midianites, O Moses, my prophet. Destroy all of them, the men and women, the children, the animals, and the fields. Destroy all of them. So Moses, in obedience, sends out his army to destroy the Midianites. And the army comes back, and Moses is very angry. This is in... Uh, Numbers 31.9. And he's angry. I'll tell you why he's angry. Because they let the women and the children live. And God's prophet, God is furious with the prophet, who's furious with his army, and he orders them back again. Go back and this time finish off the women. And even the boys kill the boys. And any girls that haven't yet reached puberty will let them live alone only. But they will be our slaves. Now, when I first became a Muslim, I came from a different religious tradition. And when I first became a Muslim, I was quite struck by how similar the, the biblical stories were to the Quranic versions. Strikingly similar, even in some very, very small details. Mm -hmm. For example, it's hardly remarked in the Bible, but it's there that God called Abraham his friend. Mm, mm. And in the Torah, and in the Quran, I beg your pardon, it also uses this phrase that, that Abraham is the, the friend of God. So there's a tremendous continuity mm. and similarity of stories. But as a scholar of war, when I first read the Quran, I wanted to read what parts of the biblical tradition have made it into the Quran. Yes. And the absence of all of those stories that you call genocidal left quite an impression on me. I thought, gosh, none of those things are mentioned. None of those atrocities that we've just recounted, which today, as you say, would be called <laughs> ethnic cleansing or genocide, are in the Quran. Oh, well, what, what, Not what, even... Sorry, I was going to say, it was interesting, when I speak to Christian missionaries, 
who are very uh, eager uh, uh, to criticize the Quran and the alleged violent nature of Islam. When you just turn it around for a second, so you do realize, Mr. Missionary or Mrs. Missionary, that in your very own scriptures, you have the command to commit Jew- uh, genocide. And uh, I, I mean, these missionaries are presumably nice people who wouldn't hurt a fly normally. You know, they wouldn't. The idea of torturing a dog or killing your neighbor would be unthinkable. They're civilized human beings normally. But and this is my universal experience. When I speak to these people and I challenge them on their own scriptures, they will offer rationalizations, excuses, apologetics as to why these stories in Joshua and Numbers and 1 Samuel 15 are Okay, they're morally justified. So you would justify the killing of men, women, and children. There are many examples you can see it on YouTube where they, they feel forced, they feel they must honor the Bible by justifying the killing of women and children. Now, Islam never has never, we'll come to Islam in a second if, if we may, because I realize I want it's good to talk yeah, about absolutely. But I just want to get this kind of state this out here that it's extraordinary when you speak to Christian apologists, they will justify genocide and the killing of women and children when it comes to their own scriptures. But they will be horrified at what they think is Islamic teaching on jihad. And I'm thinking, in what moral universe does that make sense? In any universe that doesn't make any sense to me, you have to be have a consistent moral framework. And in my personal experience, I never see that consistent moral framework. It's always completely lopsided. Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. The, the interesting thing, I, I tell you, Paul, is that if you ask a Jew as opposed to a Christian, if you mm. ask a Jew about those scriptures, they won't hide from them and they won't try and excuse them. They will simply say, you're absolutely right. We don't understand it. But that was then and this is now. Mm. Mm. And slavery is part of the Mosaic law and tradition. Mm. We do not have slaves now. Mm. So they just they just say it outright. Right. That was then and this is now. Right. We don't it's in our books, we don't deny it, we don't hide from it, but we don't do it. Mm. That's, 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 that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. The Christians, on the other hand, I think they should adopt a different strategy because after all, they have a get out of jail free card, which is that St. Paul says that the new covenant came to replace the old covenant or at least to, to, to provide the, the fulfillment of it. So you would think that they wouldn't say those things about justification, but would simply say, well, that's been done away with. Mm. That's been part of, like, like f- for example, um, some Christian denominations have, uh, have abandoned some of the 613 um, laws, the mitzvot, the laws of Moses. The Christians could simply say, it's been done away with. For whatever reason, God told the children of Israel that, but mm. Jesus brought in a new revelation, and we're the, 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 the believers in the new, not in the old. That would be a better way of dealing with it. And, and I've had those same discussions that, that you have, where, in fact, instead of that, they get all wrapped up trying to make explanations yeah. and justification. Defending the killing of children in war, and they have a, I don't think you have a problem with Islam. I mean... Really, get your get your priorities right. You know, sort out your own religion before you start daring to criticize another religion. Anyway, that's kind of my. But but it is striking that, the, like I say, that the Quran, which continues so much of the revelation mm. from the Bible, yeah. um, the, the noticeable lack of continuity. Very good point. Really good point. It, it is is exactly that that those things aren't mentioned. 
Okay. And now, even the, the, the walls tumbling down, the story yeah. of Jericho, you know, it's a great miracle of God. But because it's accompanied by that, 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 that apparent violence, it is not repeated in Quran. Extraordinary, extraordinary. So let's perhaps move into the uh, the Islamic uh, tradition now, and perhaps I can ask: uh, Did the Islamic philosophical tradition? How did the Islamic philosophical tradition of jihad evolve, and what does it include? Because the contrast now is very, very interesting with the Jewish and the Christian and now the Islamic tradition. So, could you say some words to that, please? Well, you know, everything in Islam. Uh, goes back to our holy prophet, peace be upon him. And as you know, the Quran came as a set of uh, discontinuous or non-continuous revelations to to the prophet uh, Muhammad. It didn't all come at once. No. It came, you know, sometimes there'd be a flood of revelations. Sometimes there'd be a gap of months. At one point, there was even a gap of two years. Yeah. And And when they came, they came in response to things that were happening in the life of the prophet, peace be upon him, and his community. And for the first 10 years of what we would call his ministry, his preaching, um, he was uh, still in his hometown in Mecca and in a position of relative weakness. Uh, and then after the Hijra in the year 622, um, he goes to Al Medina and builds an, an, a community around himself and his message of monotheism. And it's at that point that God, for the first time, reveals uh, a permission to fight. And it's interesting. Um, this is in Surat al-Baqarah, mm. which is the first of the major surahs to be revealed after the Hijra. And most of what we would call the concepts of awe that we would later define uh, philosophically as jihad are actually found in Surat al-Baqarah, the, the, the book of the cow. And, and so it's a new set of circumstances have manifested where the prophet uh, leading a, a community of believers in an adversarial situation where there are enemies, where there are rival tribes, where there are confl conflicting powers is told, now you can fight. But it's interesting what it says, and I'll quote you this. It's from, uh, in fact, the Surah of the Hajj, Surah al-Hajj, 2239. It says this, truly Allah will defend those who believe. Truly Allah does not love anyone who is a traitor to faith or shown gratitude. To those against whom war is made, permission is given to fight because they're wrong. And truly, Allah is most powerful for their aid. They, that's the people who have been wrong, wronged, are those who have been driven from their homes in defiance of what is right, except that they said, our Lord is Allah. So that's the first permission to fight. And then all of the context of that is provided in Surat al-Baqarah. Now, fighting wasn't a popular thing. No. And... It certainly was an unusual thing uh, for the prophet, peace be upon him, who had never fought, mm. to to ask his people to do. And so Surat al-Baqarah addresses that, verse 216. It says, fighting is ordained for you, though it's hateful to you, O people. 
but it may be that you hate a thing which is good for you and that you love a thing which is bad for you. And Allah knows what you don't know. Now, that seems quite a, a remarkable thing, in, in my view. Fighting wasn't considered to be a pleasant activity, mm. but somehow there was a goodness in it. It says it's, it's something good, though you don't recognize it as good. And that doesn't mean that the Prophet, peace be upon him, saw all war as good. The Quran and the Prophet's own message is full of uh, disdain for those who go to war unjustly, for those who exploit or hurt the poor or the weak or the disadvantaged. But the Quran itself isn't a pacifistic book. And I know that since the war on terror started, we've bent over backwards as Muslims to say, oh, but Islam is a, is a, is a religion of peace. And we try and present it almost as if we were pacifists. Yeah, I know. It's just... well, if, it's terrible because it's, just, it's not true. And you know, there is a middle ground here between being belligerent and aggressive and uh, unjust, but uh, and on the other extreme, being completely pacifist, which some Christians bizarrely think that, that Jesus is in the Bible. We, we know he's not. Just look at the book of Revelation. But, but there's a middle ground between the two extremes. And that's actually something that Islam claims to be is the what, you know, the, in Latin, the via media, the middle way between two extremes. So. A just war is permitted, unjust wars are not, I guess. I, I think you remember from the last time we spoke that you can do a calculation of all of the victims of war during that second decade of the Prophet's ministry. He, he was at war for a decade, from 622 until his death, hmm. 632. Now, if you include the Banu Qurayza, which may have been 400 or 700, it raises the figure. But we know in the battles themselves, how many people died? 216 non-Muslims and 138 Muslims. That's a total of 354 in a, in a decade, which wow. means that only each month, only two non-Muslims died a month. And it means only one Muslim became a martyr per month. So I know that the people who are critical of Islam, and the world is full of critics of Islam. I mean, that's their business. They can be if they want. But they should at least look at some of these issues and say, oh, but you have a verse called the verse of the sword. It sounds very martial and very hateful. Well, the consequence of that wasn't especially hateful at all. Only 354 people did in a decade. And... If only wars could be as low casualty as that today. Look at how many soldiers have died in Ukraine uh, just in the last four or five months. You, you know, maybe as many as 50,000 are already dead, maybe more than that. And, and yet in the life of the Prophet, 354, of which 138 are Muslims and 216 are their opponents. So the scale of this thing, this, this war, is, is very different. And I know why it's different. And that's because the Quran is very clear that human life actually matters. And in the book of the table, Surat al-Maida, it's very, very clear that human life matters. The taking of a human life, unless it's for murder or facade, is like the taking of all of humanity. And the saving of a life is like the, the saving of humanity. 
How beautiful is that? And if that's the default setting... In- but but I, I hear that, but some would say, uh, are there any specific injunctions uh, not to attack non-combatants, prisoners of war? Are there any in Islam, in the Quran and the Sunnah, specific injunctions not to target uh, civilians, m- you know, Christians, priests, monks? What about women? What about the elderly? What about the sick? What about children, which the Bible repeatedly says are to be exterminated in war? I mean, uh, is there anything in Islam in the authentic early sources which prohibits any of these? Well, yes, the the Quran itself talks about war quite a lot. Mm. And it it ordinarily talks about it ordinarily in the context of how you can respond to people who have demonstrated aggression towards you. That's the ordinary context for those verses. So it says things, for example, whoever defends himself after he has been wronged, <clears throat> there's no blame against him, which means that it's there's no moral reprehensibility about a people that are attacked defending themselves. Defense is morally acceptable. And that's in the surah of the shura, suratum shura, as ashura, um, 42-41. It, it says something even different. Quite striking, actually. It goes some way towards matching the Christian concept of proportionality in Surat al-Baqarah. It says this, if anyone transgresses against you, you may retaliate against them to an equal measure. Mm. That's Surat al-Baqarah 219. Mm. So the Quran itself lays out a concept of war reasonably thoroughly, reasonably thoroughly in a way that, for example, neither the New Testament nor the Old Testament does. In the Bible, as we mentioned, there's some ghastly things, and there's not even a a philosophical explanation for them. Mm. In the Quran, we find a book of considerable restraint uh, in terms of warfare. Warfare is legitimate. It's permissible. It doesn't only say defensive warfare anywhere in Quran. In fact, an imperative developed where God says, again, in Surah Al-Baqarah, fight in the cause. It's the imperative voice. It's a command. Fight in the cause of Allah, those who are fighting against you. But don't transgress limits. Don't transgress limits. Why not? For Allah does not love the transgressors. But what are those limits? So you mentioned about, you know, portionality. But does it specifically list those categories of people, non-combatant civilians, who are not to be touched in in conflict situations? The Quran itself doesn't. The Quran isn't as it, as detailed as perhaps the the Sunnah of the Prophet is in this regard. But the Sunnah of the Prophet, and by that we mean the Sarah of the Prophet and the Ahadith. They create a, a kind of a set of normative rules on these things that are enforced today. Yeah. And they're very clear, for example, that you can't kill a woman. Right. Um, firstly, women shouldn't be on the battlefield. They, they have no role in battle except to perhaps uh, provide bandages and, and treatment or care for those who are wounded or to bring up um, food for their husbands. Apart from that, they were to stay away and they weren't to take up arms against against anyone. As a consequence of that, they weren't to be hung. Now, we know when that prohibition came as a strict enforceable rule 
which was during the Battle of Hunain in the year 630. And in January 630, the Fatah, Mecca, had occurred, the opening of Mecca. And then two neighboring tribes had seemed to be marshalling their forces against the, the Prophet, peace be upon him. So he led the army, uh, his force, out towards Ta'if. And on the way, in a place we're not exactly sure where, in, in, in Hunain, there was a battle. But before they got to Hunain, on the road, uh, the Prophet's party came across the body on the road of a dead woman. Mm. And the Prophet was deeply upset. And in all of the six Sunni hadith collections, the canonical collections, this event is described in detail, um, and some in more detail than others. And in all six, in Bukhari and in Muslim, it's, it's, uh, it shows the Prophet responding very negatively to the killing of women, and saying, you may never kill a woman, a woman. You may not. And go and told, tell those right ahead and tell those who did this, this must never happen again. So that's very explicit. Mm-hmm. But, but even before that, when the prophet had sent out these raging parties, and there were very many of them, um, most he didn't lead himself. He led 27 military missions of different kinds, and there were more than 50 others, each led by normally a young man who was learning the skills of necessary in 7th century Arabia to be a leader. The prophet would send them out, and before he would send them, he would sit with them and he would say, I have several things I want from you. You are to be good to those you lead. You are to treat your people decently, don't have pride over them, don't ask them to do something you wouldn't do, um, and keep their behavior moral. Don't let them do violence, and don't let them harm women and children. Don't let them mutilate. Um, don't let them damage the, the property that, that the, the enemy's people rely on. So that was, we know this from the Sarah, that was said to everybody that he sent out on a mission. And obviously when he went out on a mission himself, he lived by the rules that he imposed on others. Those we have. So what do we know? We know that women couldn't be harmed or deliberately targeted. We know that children couldn't. And children that meant anyone under the age of 15. And strangely enough, or coincidentally, whichever way you see it, International humanitarian law now doesn't allow you to take anyone under the age of 15 into military service. It's perhaps coincidentally, but it's a nice coincidence that it's exactly the same age that the prophet identified as being the age when you could fight and therefore could be killed. So boys under the age of 15 could not. Girls obviously couldn't. It went beyond that. So, for example... The, the servants of the enemy's combatants couldn't be killed. The yeah. servants would carry the armor. The servants would carry the spear that was the main weapon. This is all very heavy, and they would walk with their master to the battlefield. When the Muslims fought against them, they could kill the combatant, but they couldn't kill the servant. Mm. They weren't allowed to keep to, to kill old people. Now, I, I'm 58 now, and... I, I, I know I look old, but I don't feel especially old. 
The age at which you may not kill an old person, according to Islam, is the age of 50. So that's when you become elderly. So according to Islam, I'm now elderly and cannot be harmed in war. So anyone over that age was exempt from violence, unless they chose to put themselves in harm's way with a weapon. Ah, and so, so, so you did so get if, some... If they, what I was going to say is you get an old person, or presumably a woman, who took up uh, you know, a weapon and rushed ahead and to attack the Muslims, she could then be a legitimate target. And that would, even though she was a woman? Even though she's a woman. You, you know, we don't have many examples of that, but there are examples. Hmm. Um, in a particular battle, for example, a siege, a siege of the Bana Koreva, uh, one woman threw a millstone, oh, which yeah. is a great big round rock, right. down onto the head of a Muslim and Christian. Oh. So she was executed along with the men. She lost her civilian immunity, as we would call it today. Mm. And so she went to her death yeah. uh, as a consequence of that. But women weren't to be killed in war. Old people, as I said, children, uh, uh, servants. And it went even further than that. You weren't allowed to damage their houses. You weren't allowed to damage their fields. You weren't even allowed to pillage from uh, their fields more than what your immediate food need was at that time. So should you be starving and the enemy have uh, six sheep in the field and one would suffice to feed you and your men, that's all you could take. Mm-hmm. You couldn't take anything more. You couldn't take a surplus. You couldn't say, well, we'll take them all and have a grand feast. So those rules were very strict. And that emerged as a set of laws. uh, Well, as far as laws exist. Um, By around the year, I don't know, 830, 850. Mm. So within 200 years after the prophet's life, peace be upon him, all of these rules are in place about about who you can harm uh, during war. But even beyond that, how you're to fight in war. And we have, I think, around 55 war manuals from medieval Islam that we've identified, that we have copies of. Um, and there's a consistency in all 55 wow. that you can't, you can't kill a woman, you can't kill a child, under 15, um, you can't kill an old person, you can't kill a servant, you can't damage their houses, uh, and so on. So there's a tremendous consistency uh, of approach to those issues. Mm. Now, one of the complex things is, well, when can you go to war in Islam? Mm. Is offensive war permissible? Ah. I mean, on, on, we, that, on, that, sorry, on that very point, Joe, I just wanted to ask you, because I know you refute the idea that the Prophet Muhammad, upon him be peace, fought only defensively. And in your recent book, Leadership of Muhammad, and your forthcoming book, The Warrior Prophet, Muhammad and War, you point out that he regularly initiated offensive warfare. Can you explain how this would correspond to the ethics of war we were talking about, or even to the Geneva Convention or the UN Charter? Yeah, it's a very good question. And, you know, we live in a world where since 1945, the principal document of international law uh, is the United Nations Charter. 
Mm-hmm. And the United Nations Charter was signed uh, after the, Euro- the European war had ended. The Germans had been defeated, but the Japanese still hadn't yet. And so there was still something like 20 million allied soldiers at war now under the command technically of this new body called the United Nations. And so war wasn't banned by the UN Charter, but there is a clause in the UN Charter which says that member states shall refrain from undertaking war against the territorial integrity of member, other member states. I mean, it's, it's very clear. So we have come since then to see offensive war as being something in some ways prohibited. Now, is that really the origin, 1945, of the belief that offensive war is wrong? I go back further and I think about a man I used to read an awful lot when I was younger, and that's Tolstoy. Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer. He's the writer of Anna Karenina and War and Peace uh, and so on. Well, 1894, he wrote a book in English, uh, not in English, he wrote it in German, actually, uh, published it first in German, called The Kingdom of God is Within You. Oh, yeah. Which, no, it's a saying from Jesus. Yes, I read it. And, and he advanced a notion that tried to take Christianity back to a, a pacifistic origin. And he argued uh, that Jesus was a pacifist and that the turning of the cheek was essential. And this had a profound impact uh, on the early 20th century and, in fact, upon such luminaries as, as Mahatma Gandhi um, and Martin Luther King. And so this belief that uh, warfare can ever be right and somehow has been severely challenged in the 20th century, philosophically. And, and, and so I, I'm not sure if that's the origin, but it's an early example of somebody saying, turn the other cheek. Mm. Now, that goes further even than self-defensive war. Mm. But obviously, wars continued to happen after Tolstoy, and nations continued to fight. But the impact of the First World War, in which 20 million soldiers died, and it was supposed to be the war to end all wars, was that the world community said, we have to find a way to limit the harm of war. Mm. And coincidentally, the late years of the 19th century um, are a most fascinating period. You take the Battle of Solferino. This was a, a, a very famous battle in the top of Italy towards where Trieste is um, between the Sardinians and the French uh, on the one side and the Austro-Hungarians on the other. And they uh, marshaled huge forces towards each other in this battle that was supposed to decide the future of the the Italian princely states. And it was horrifically uh, violent. Mm. And there were tens of thousands of wounded and dying people scattered on the battlefield after this, this battle. 
And who should happen to walk across the battlefield but a Swiss merchant called Henri Dunant. And he was aghast at the fact that the wounded weren't being treated. There was no medical corps rushing in to stitch them up and bandage them and treat them. And the dead were decaying and no one was burying them. And he thought this was just utterly repellent. This is in uh, 1859. So 1850 is a very colourful period. This is the time of, you know, Marx and Engels and, and Charles Darwin. But more positively, the, the, the beginning of what we now call international humanitarian law. Because that, that Swiss man, Henri Dunant, went back home and spoke with diplomats and friends of high standing and said, we have to find a way to ameliorate, was the word they used, the shocking and atrocious uh, human cost of war, particularly with the wounded. And, and, and so uh, 1863, you get the first meeting in Geneva of what became the International Committee of the Red Cross. Okay. And Geneva, these people that met together, and they were only in those days, I think about 10 countries that actually met together in the first instance to, to, to create a treaty, um, created the first Geneva Convention, because right. that's what it was. It was a convention in Geneva. And they, they created a set of rules on what should happen to sick people, sick and wounded uh, during and after war. So that's, that's the beginning of the, the Geneva Conventions as we, we know them. So that's, I think, uh, that is actually the beginning of international humanitarian law. They then decide that uh, they have to find a way to deal with prisoners. They have to deal with uh, civilians, non-combatants. And so over the next... I don't know, 60, 50 years, they have three more meetings in Geneva and each one resulted in a new body of laws. So by the time you get to the Second World War, there's actually been three large Geneva conventions. And in 1949, after the Second World War, they are so shocked by the Second World War, which killed 60 million people, 40 million of them civilians, that they expanded those earlier laws into what we now call the Geneva Conventions proper, Geneva Conventions of 1949. Now, they're utterly fabulous documents. They, they show that humans are trying to, uh, to progress. We are trying to do better century by century by century to become less brutal and less harmful. But, and those, Joe, if I could just... Go ahead. Uh, because <clears throat> your explanation, your historical account there is very interesting indeed. Um, it just struck me as ironic. Um, I mean, there are many, many RAs one can mention, but I won't go into all of that. That countries like France, Britain, United States, signatories to the Geneva Convention, still between them hold literally thousands of nuclear weapons, which by definition, if you drop them on anywhere will kill anything and absolutely everything randomly 
Um, America dropped nuclear weapons on Japan, of course, in 1945. So we still hold weapons of mass destruction, which are completely indiscriminate, in complete defiance of everything in the Geneva Convention. The very states that are signatory, they still hold weapons, which they might use, otherwise there's no point in having them, in complete defiance of the very principles that they publicly uphold. If that is the case, then one, under, one asks what the intention is behind signing. The, it's just a question of seeing the obvious. If they were serious, then why are they, why are they producing weapons of mass destruction in the first place, which are in violation of... I, I know this is a, a different subject, but I just wanted to say... We have no, no, it's a very important subject. And, and I just don't get it. I just don't get nuclear weapons if we hold just war or any kind of moral discourse at all on the on this subject. But. You, you know, it's a wonderful question. I was brought up. I, I, I was born in New Zealand. And in the 1980s, a Labour-led government uh, passed legislation to make New Zealand the world's first nuclear-free yes. zone. Yes. And I'm awfully proud of that. Um, it certainly caused a, a problem between New Zealand and the Americans, uh, as you can imagine, because we said we won't have your warships come into our ports. Uh, and the Americans, we were then in the ANZUS alliance with the Americans. Um, I guess we still are again. Um, but it did cause a, a big problem. Now, we, we're only in the position where one Muslim country, which is Pakistan, mm. Muslim-majority country, has a nuclear weapon. Yeah. And they had to do a bit of twisting and turning in their uh, understanding of Sharia to pass uh, fatwas, uh, allowing them to have the nuclear weapon. Um, it's been widely held within Islam that the nuclear weapon, because it's indiscriminate and because it's so disproportionate, is a non-usable weapon. And if it's non-usable, don't have it. Exactly. But this, this power rivalry between the Pakistanis and the Indians compelled it. The Indians got the weapon first. Um, the Pakistanis then said, well, we needed to have it to create the, assure, the, the deterrence of mutually assured destruction. So we're getting it regardless. And they very quickly developed the, the nuclear weapon. Mm. Um, but your question goes wider than that. Your question is, why do countries that are active and proud members of the United Nations and have signed and ratified the Geneva Conventions and the Hague Conventions, which have a class of weapons that they call a mala and say evil in themselves, well, why do they have the, the nuclear weapon? Yeah. Why do they keep it? Exactly. And there's really no answer to that. Okay. The answer that they would give is that the weapon has only been used once. Twice. And twice. Japan. Twice. 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 Uh, against one enemy. Against one opponent. Against two civilian oh. populations in the same country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's a pretty outrageous thing. I mean, you drop a bomb and you kill 80,000 people in a flash of white light. And then uh, several days later, you want to test out the other version of the bomb you have. And so you choose another Japanese city and drop it there to see how that will work. But their, their logic is that that created a taboo, which they respect. And so the Americans will say, well, uh, theoretically, we're never going to use it. But we have to have it just in case the other side no, but, doesn't but, but, respect Joel, it. But Joel, with respect, uh, I remember reading in the press just a few weeks ago that, that the American, very senior American generals were actually talking about using nuclear weapons 
they could conceive of circumstances where they would use, use nuclear weapons in Ukraine or against, you know, in the Ukrainian war. They were actually considering the possibility. I made this, but this is not gossip. This is something they said. So they're considering using them. Now, this might have been rhetoric, propaganda, a device to scare Putin. I, I, don't, I don't know. That's not the point. But the very fact that they use the language of using nuclear weapons at all shows that the Americans are still considering using them like they have. They're the only country in the world ever to use them, of course. Uh, and therefore, one can't necessarily trust them. They will never use it again. Um, as I said, I, as a New Zealander, mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I deeply oppose uh, the, the nuclear weapon. Um, I, I am aghast at the fact that uh, even countries that have said that such things as cluster munitions mm. are so reprehensible because they blow the hands or the arms off young children can be banned, like Britain has now, finally, right. after right. using cluster munitions very recently, by the way, in the war on terror and Kosovo before that and all the wars before that, they finally banned them. And they, they banned them on the logic that they are indiscriminate, that people will get their hands and feet or legs uh, blown off by picking up something that looks like a golf ball. Won't ban their own nuclear weapons. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a very strange logic, and I have no answer for it. Okay. I don't know. Oh, um, it, it's quite exceptional. Um, but to go back to the Geneva Conventions, the Geneva Conventions strangely say nothing about when you can fight. Mm. And they don't say anything about the decision to go to war, except that in, I think, 1907, the Hague Protocols, which are a kind of a subset of the Geneva Conventions, um, did say that you have to declare war. War has to be declared so that the enemy has a reasonable time to make a, a just and sporting response to that. Um, you can't simply pounce on them without declaring war. Um, and, and that's... yeah. That's kind of a, I suppose, some type of constraint. Apart from that, there's nothing that says that you can't go to war, um, almost for any reasons, apart from, as I mentioned, the Charter of the UN uh, itself. And I'll read you what the Charter says. This is in Article 2, Section 4. All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. So that's the United Nations Charter. It's saying effectively that you shouldn't go to war. But all it's saying, and it's wording exactly, is you shall refrain from doing so. It's not an explicit prohibition, mm. and it doesn't constitute a definite crime. Mm. So it's, it's a kind of a, a statement of intent to the world that doesn't have any teeth. The United Nations Charter does say beyond that, which is rather consistent with just war, it says something like this. In fact, I'll read it. This is Article 2.4. No, I beg your pardon, Article 51. Nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nation, Nations, 
until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. And so that's all there is about about the limitations on going to war. So you remember back when Tony Blair took Britain to war against Afghanistan and then Iraq, Mm. a lot of people were saying this is a war crime. Yeah. Well, to have a crime, you have to have a statute. And in international law, there is no rule or law against war. War is not illegal. Even offensive war is not illegal. Now, to go back to your question earlier, how can you justify an offensive war? How can that ever be just? The answer is because you might, for example, see your enemy um, doing wanton violence to its own people. And so you might say, uh, for example, the uh, Serbs are maltreating the people of Kosovo so gratuitously that we have to stop them doing that. This was the NATO justification, you remember, for war in 1999. They said that, you know, we don't support the Kosovo Liberation Army. We recognize them as terrorists, but because the Serbs are fighting them so disproportionately and they're killing civilians and it seems to be ethnic cleansing, we're going to stop them doing that. Now, the world didn't condemn NATO, but actually it was very controversial, but it went ahead anyway because they said this is an offensive war. We agree, but it's an offensive war for a just cause. And you asked earlier about about why I'm I'm unafraid to say that the prophets sometimes went to war offensively and not always defensively as the kind of the pacifistic elements are, are now pushing is because sometimes he simply saw a need. Now, you put yourself into the position of a leader of a community. Mm. There are all sorts of communities around you that you're in a perpetual state of war against. And I mentioned last time, I think we spoke, that Arabia in the 7th century wasn't like the world is today. Today we have a default setting of a state of peace between nations. And the exceptions are when two or three or other states decide they have a squabble and go to war for it. Apart from that, there's a state of peace. Seventh century Arabia was the opposite. It was uh, continuously competitive um, and warlike. So it's it's more like like dog dog eats dog rather than a default setting of order and uh, non-attack. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, for example, you're in a state of, a constant state of war against all of these tribes around that are seeking advantage over you. There's limited resources, there's limited food, there's limited water. They're going to want to water their camels in your water holes. They're going to want to move it across your grazing grounds. So these situations occurred. The prophet said, "We, we we can't have that. We have an obligation. I have an obligation as leader to to grow the well-being of my people, of my people. My highest responsibility is to my people, not to those people, not to them. I don't have any innate hatred for peoples around me. 
but we're in a state of competition. Mm. And my responsibility as leader is to maintain and grow the well-being and prosperity of my people. And so that's how I see the prophet using war as this greatly transformational uh, means of achieving the continued well-being and safety and security of this new community that he's created. Um, you know, you, you spring up what amounts or what looks to most people around as something like a new tribe, mm. this, this new Islamic ummah. And the people around it are aggressively competing against it. And the prophet has an obligation to win that competition because if he doesn't, his people may become extinct, or his community might, or at least they will suffer deprivation and hardship caused by that competition in this very tough environment. So I'm, I'm unembarrassed, if that's a word, to say that the prophet seeking the well-being of his people, putting it first as a leader should, sometimes went to war offensively. Mm. No problem whatsoever. The yeah, sources yeah. attest to it. They're unmistakable. One can't argue against the sources. Uh, that's what they say. I mean, the, 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 the problem I have, what, what I mean, I, I accept what you're saying. The problem I have is that religious people, especially including Muslims these days, seem to be seem to be coming increasingly pacifistic, seeing all but purely self-defensive war as wrong. Now, you've dealt with that, and obviously what you're saying is accurate, but it, it's curious that this emphasis seems to be permeating um, the different religions. But, it, but it, does it actually correspond to anything in Christianity or Islam, or is this a kind of a, um, a new fad that had just come out of nowhere in the last few years? It's greater than a fad. And, and uh, I mentioned Leo Tolstoy. So from, you know, the mid-years of the 1800s, there's been a, a kind of an increasing desire to see uh, the harm of war reduced, which is ironic given that the 20th century was the most brutal in, in human history. You know, more than 100 million people killed in war. And, you know, it's it's unimaginable mm. how horrific the First and Second World Wars were. But perhaps having seen those and seen the, the, the simple awfulness of imperialism and colonialism, um, people don't want those things anymore. No. And they, they have this, this, this hope, which is a, a reasonable hope that War is a declining human experience, mm. and that eventually it will it will be gone. I'd like to see that as well. I suspect it won't happen. The problem with it is we start to kind of invent things that aren't there. Mm. If you go to most, I don't know, if I go and ask most of my Church of England or Baptist friends, they, they've, they've become pretty much pacifists. Mm. Mm. I lived in Alabama, on the other hand, in the 1990s, where the Christians certainly are not pacifists. I can believe that. Uh, they believe that God wants war to make the world righteous. And, and that's their version of righteousness, of course, mm. that we're going to go and fight God's enemies. Mm. Now, 
we had a version of that within Islam once. And that after the time of Abu Hanifa, you see, the Prophet died, peace be upon him, in 632. Then you have the rightfully guided caliphs, as we call them now, after that for around another 30 years. And we have the Umayyads rapidly expanding what those uh, previous four leaders had done. So by the time of, I don't know who, Abu, well, I don't know, um, I don't know, by the high years of the Umayyads, by the ESA, I don't know, 700, um, Muslims have already reached to, to, to Morocco. In 711, they crossed the streets of Gibraltar. Mm, mm. By the mid-750s, they're almost at Paris. Yes. They've got all the way in the other direction to the borders of India. They're at the Indus River already. And so there's a massive Islamic expansion, yes. the seizure of millions of square miles of territory yes. and tens of millions of people. And so when the first Madhahab were created and the Sharia was codified in writing, for the first time, war became an important part um, for the fuqaha to deal with, the scholars to deal with, to write laws on. And what else are you going to believe except God has made this happen for you? And so, and, and I'm not saying that's either true or not true, but it was the perception. So the way law was written for the first hundreds of years of written law in the Islamic world um, was that that large contiguous Islamic Polity. And by contiguous, I mean all the peoples joined border to border next to each other that expanded for thousands of miles mm. with Muslims controlling all of that, said that the people outside it, the non-contiguous people, were the abode of war, the Dar al-Harb, and therefore uh, were to be uh, contested. Contest means war. War was to be made against them uh, until they could be brought into a position of submission. Unless, unless presumably there, there were treaties with, uh, it's not just binary, is it? There's a third category of, I forget the Arab, but the people who you have treaties with, obviously by definition, you're not going to be just attacking them. Um, you know. The Dar es Sul. Thank you. The, 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 the abode of, of, of treaties, of of conciliation. So this, this, this binary division of the world for the first 100 or 200 years that it was written down, um, it, it was a very, it was a very binary situation. Right. What was to be made against non-believers? Not, not, and I repeat this, not to uh, convert them to Islam, right. but to make them politically <clears throat> submissive to the Islamic polity. So it's really important so, so when people say, as some people still state, that Islam was spread by the sword, you're saying no and yes. Uh, in terms of... Yeah, it's a, it's a, no, but in terms of the polity, the ruling system, yes, I suppose. It's a very, very important distinction to make. You know, 
In, in the Quran, we're told that there's no compulsion in matters of, of the deen, of religion. And we're told such things as to you, your way, to, to me, my way. We take those things pretty seriously. No compulsion. And, and that limited, for example, the amount of coercive power that the Islamic State, as it emerged, would have religiously on other people. But there's also a practical aspect to that, and that is if you left people as non-Muslims, then they're going to pay you jizya. And the jizya was a very handsome amount of money, and the state needed that money. So not only was there a belief that it's wrong to convert people by force, <clears throat> but that, in fact, if you didn't and left them as non-Muslims, there's actually a financial reward in doing so. so you're saying there's an, economic disincentive. there's an economic disincentive kind of built into the realities of the situation to, uh, to convert people to Islam because they'd lose the jizya. Of course, their Muslims would pay the zakat, of course. It's not like they'd be paying anything, but it wouldn't be that rich um, re revenue stream. So it's ironic. Yeah. For, for, uh, for the first 100 or 200 years, of this binary division of the world, mm. these other categories really didn't exist. But then what happened? I'll tell you what happened. It's quite fascinating. You end up with uh, two caliphates oh. and a rival caliphates. So you end up with the uh, Umayyads resurging, not in the Near East, they've been driven out, but in Spain, Al-Andalus. And so you have two Ummas, well, you have, I guess, one of them, but you have two political entities, each claiming to be the legitimate representation of, of God on earth. You have the Abbasids saying, we supplanted you in the Near East because you were uh, miscreants. You did not behave properly according to God's laws. Well, they now re research and they reemerge in Spain. Mm. And so you've got this problem for the first time of non-contiguous Islamic populations. And you've got a set of rules which say that there is a, a Dar al-Islam, the abode of Islam, which is a conti contiguous, unbroken uh, piece of humanity around which the, 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 the non-believers lived. And out there are now Muslims um, of a different type. And, and so that creates a problem because the Abbasids want to disadvantage the Umayyads. Mm -hmm. so what are they going to do? I tell you what they do. They reach out to the Carolingians, oh. the people of what we now call France and Germany, yeah. who are right above Spain, and they are the enemies of the Umayyads in Spain. And so they enter treaty relations with the people of the Carolingian Empire. On the other hand, the Umayyads who are equally keen to diminish the authority of the Abbasids mm. reach out to the Hungars, the Bulgars, and the Byzantines, because wow. they're the people that are hemming in the Abbasids, mm. and they enter treaty relations with them. It got even more complicated by around the year 900-something when you have the Fatimids emerge as a third caliphate. Yeah, yeah. Right in the middle of these two. 
Yeah. In, in Egypt, was, was that in Egypt or somewhere like that? Or Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you get them from, uh, you've got the Umayyads out in Spain and, and in what's now Morocco and so on. You've got the Fatimids uh, in the middle until around the year 1170 or 71. And then you've still got the Abbasids in the Near East. Mm. The two, the two, what we would today call Sunni, are caliphates. Mm. They never put aside their differences, but they see a kind of a common foe mm. in the in the Fatimids. Mm. And so, so these this binary division of the world, the belief that Muslims are effectively um, under a mission from God to take Islam to the world. And the people outside of that are these warlike people to be defeated. That no longer holds true, because suddenly you've got competing Muslim polities. Uh, and not only that, some of the people in the Dar al Harb, the so-called bad people, are actually on the side of the Umayyads or on the side of the uh, Abbasids, and they enter treaties uh, with them. And so you end up with this concept of the Dar al Sul, the abode of, of treaties. Mm. And, and so, it, you know, it's a very complicated business. Um, and that's the reality of, say, a snapshot of, of Islam. If you jumped back exactly a thousand years ago, wow. um, what you would see in the world. And we, we, think automatically that the default setting for humans is peace. When we greet each other, we say, assalamu alaikum, the Jews, shalom alaikum. Um, and so we, we have this kind of romantic view that peace is the default setting for humans mm. and that war is undertaken to achieve peace. And to a large degree, that's true. But Peace as a state exists between individuals. When we say assalamu alaikum, mm. I'm meaning to you, Paul, as an individual. And that's complicated when you look at the world as an arena of competition. Mm. Competition for power, for glory, for resources and wealth. And so sometimes it's actually not advantageous to have peace at least in the short term, sometimes it's necessary to use the transformational role of warfare to advantage your people because you're responsible for them. Mm -hmm. And if that means, for example, you, you contest a, a piece of land um, or you contest a, a control over sea lanes or um, a, a merchant routes, then you do so. And so, as I said earlier, we shouldn't simply say offensive war is bad and defensive war is good, even in Islam. Uh, it's far more complicated mm. than that. Mm. No, that's absolutely fascinating. So um, nowadays we say that diplomacy and not war is the best means of achieving uh, harmonious relationships between States. Does Islam say anything similar or is that purely a modern notion, do you think? Um, actually, you know, the book I'm now writing, uh, I'm writing a new book called The Diplomacy of Muhammad, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
And, you know, I, I just uh, last year did the leadership of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm just about to have published the, the, the warfare of Muhammad. This one I'm doing on the diplomacy of Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, is actually the most joyous for me to write because that's where I see the prophet's true mastery. Right. Uh, you know, the prophet was unusually good, mm. unusually good at managing the tribal rivalries of Arabia. Mm. He had an innate sense of how to get people on side and how to deal with people that couldn't be brought on side. And diplomacy, in fact, takes up quite a large chunk of the early uh, Sharia. And we, we do have medieval manuals of diplomacy. Um, a very popular one that's now been translated into English is by a scholar called uh, Ibn Farah, and he was writing a, a thousand years ago um, after that binary, binary division of the world had broken down. And he's saying, well, how do we get on with people? The prophet at the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, peace be upon him, made a treaty with the Meccans for 10 years. Yeah. Until now, until now, that's the longest period that we have made a peace treaty for. Mm. And Ibn Farah is saying, should that limitation, because it's Sunnah, remain, or would the prophet in his intention mm. have wanted that extended mm. to perpetual peace between nations? Mm. And so what he argues essentially is that peace can be made and should be made indefinitely between states that seek it, and that the goodwill or the good intention of the Islamic State is to pursue that, pursue the perpetual peace between states that would otherwise compete. So it rests on a very strong body of sunnah. Uh, it, it rests on true examples of the Prophet's remarkable statesmanship uh, as a diplomat, as opposed to... Uh, to, to, to the easy slip into war as the best means of achieving that. Mm. And then we can jump forward even further to Ibn Khaldun, and a big chunk of his Muqaddama deals again <laughs> with diplomacy and goodwill between states. Mm. And Ibn Khaldun is quite clear. He says this, he said, you know, the prophet was told by God that not everyone would become Muslims. Not everyone would. Some people would never become Muslims. So we have to get over that. Mm. And if that's so, if that's so, can't we go back to doing what the Prophet did, which is to extend goodwill even to the non-Muslims without wanting things from them, apart from their goodwill in return? We can end up as trade partners. It's good for us. We can learn from them as humans. And so Ibn Khaldun has whole sections on this spirit of, which is similar to Hugo Grotius a bit later, mm -hmm. of saying a community of <clears throat> states or nations or peoples exists, that all humans have an inherent dignity or states have an inherent dignity violence against them is actually not such a good thing. Sometimes it's necessary. 
either offensively or defensively. Sometimes it is. But ordinarily, through diplomacy, we're going to look to do something different. And so I see that period from Ibn Farah to uh, Ibn Khaldun as being a transformation in Islamic thinking on statecraft. Now, what it corresponds with, of course, is the decline of Islamic power anyway. Mm. When you're triumphant and you're in the ascendant, you can have this bold claim that we can go to war against the Dar al-Hab continuously because we are powerful and God has blessed every step we've taken. That's the first 100 or two or 300 years. By around the year 1100, 1200, the Abbasids are in a terminal decay. Mm. By 1258, the Mongols come steamrolling over Iraq and Islamic power has a dramatic fall off in global influence. Mm. And, and so that binary division of the world ceases to have the power it once had, or, or logically, the, the, the centrality that it once had. And so these writers, like Ibn Khaldun, who were saying that was then and now we're in a different world, um, are, are saying a place in diplomacy as being the, the central state uh, form of engagement with other states, as opposed to warfare, as in, in, in a previous time. Now, humans being humans, of course, we then get the, uh, the Ottomans, the Ottomans. Yeah. And the, the Ottomans have a very rapid period of accelerated growth, phenomenal growth, right up to the time of the conquest of Constantinople, uh, in 1453, fascinating thing to, to write about, based on offensive war. They were acting offensively, not defensively, expanding Islam with armies, not through forced conversions, as I mentioned, but it's about political power. And they tried to revive that old binary division of the world again. It reappears in the philosophical writings of the uh, the, the Ottoman writers for the first two or 300 years of Ottoman history. Mm. But then again, even the Ottomans go into their decline and they realize that actually they don't even control the majority of the world's Muslims. Mm. Who are they to declare the world is divided in this binary fashion? Even within the Ottoman world itself, most citizens aren't Muslims. Right. Because, of course, most Ottomans were Christians uh, for a large period of, of time. So how do you deal with people who think differently, that have religious differences? And then the second half of the Ottoman period is this return again to the ideas of Ibn Khaldun and others, that diplomacy should be the primary form of engagement between states and not warfare. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you, you know, it's all very fascinating. Um, it, unfortunately, I wish I could say that Islam has succeeded in, in uh, making war uh, a, a thing of the past. I wish I could say the United Nations has. I wish I could say that the two world wars mm. uh, have. But sadly, I think it, it war is part of human competitiveness. Humans don't want to compete. We want to 
uh, don't want to cooperate. We want to compete. It's something within us. It's dark. I don't know where it comes from. It seems almost impossible to transform it. And war remains with us as it has for 6,000 years. Mm. Yes, and it continues, obviously, today, even in Europe. Um, say even in Europe, we perhaps delude ourselves into thinking that it would not return, but it always has been in Europe as well, uh, obviously. I think um, I, I'd just invite you finally then to make some concluding comments uh, uh, because you've very generously given of your time for uh, a couple of hours now about war and religion, the Western and Islamic traditions. So would you like to perhaps sum up or uh, offer some concluding <laughs> Yeah, thank you very kindly, Paul. You know, um, as a Muslim, I'm aware that our rules of war and our philosophy of war um, actually reached a kind of a fullness before the Western equivalent did. And that this has given rise to some type of belief among a lot of Muslims that the Western rules of war or the philosophy of war therefore grew out of the Islamic concepts. Mm -hmm. And I don't find any evidence of that at all. It'd be nice if I could, but I I haven't. So how do I explain that? I explain it simply like this. There's a a logical fallacy called post hoc. There's a Latin phrase that says, post hoc, ergo propter hoc. Um, Something uh, happens, And something happens after that. What happened first must have caused what happened after that. And that's a logical fallacy. We normally laugh when we say, if we use a different example of the same thing, the rooster crowed in the morning Mm. and the sun came up. (laughs) Therefore, the the, the, the rooster made the sun come up. Because every day the rooster crows. Yeah. Before the sun comes up, it's the rooster therefore caused the sun to come up. Mm. Well, obviously, that's not true. But what I would say is that for those who see war as being somehow a, a stronger or more central part of Islam than it has been in the other civilizations, that simply isn't so. Mm. Islam is a at its nature is actually a rather gentle thing. And it is based on the dignity of humans. Our holy book, the Quran, has a lovely verse about men and women falling in love. Mm. And it's God speaking. And he says, we have made you men and women. But he continues by talking about communities and we have made you tribes and peoples so that you will know each other. Mm. Now, why has he mentioned men and women before he just launches into how he wants the world to be? Because he's saying that the tribes and peoples of the world should be like men and women destined to fall in love. Uh, That's the desired state between men and women. As it is, as I read Quran, between peoples, harmony, peace, goodwill. And so, you know, I, I'm kind of excited about the fact that uh, Islam has a very strict code of war that, although it doesn't prevent war, 
it reduces it to fighting when it's necessary or when it's just. And then when it happens, it prevents harm to those who don't deserve harm, the women, the children, the aged, the infirm, um, in fact, everybody uninvolved in the fighting. Those ideas might not have come from Islam in the West. They did develop much later. And I think a lot about Abraham Lincoln. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, the war, the Civil War became very violent very quickly. Mm. And Abraham Lincoln hired, if that's the right word, he employed a, a, a jurist whose name was Lieber to create a moral code for the North's fighting of the South. It's called the Lieber Code, I think 1863. Fabulous document, well worth reading by, by everyone interested in the subject. It's, it's a forerunner to the Geneva Conventions that Henri Dunant would create. When I read that document, I am struck by the fact that we in Islam had those, had those ideas around a thousand years before, a thousand years before. And those ideas had broadly governed Islamic history and the expansion and competition of Islamic states now for 1,200 years. So I find that a very exciting thing. I don't say that to boast that as Muslims we do something better, but only that when we compare the Western ideas <clears throat> about war, we have something just as sophisticated, mm. just as sophisticated, and is based on the very best of human intentions. In fact, the best of divine intentions, mm. which is to make sure that war is as harmless as it possibly can be. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful ending to mention Abraham Lincoln and then the the deep history of those ideas back a thousand years prior. Um, that's extraordinary because we, we don't have that perspective in usually in the West, whether it be in the United States or uh, we don't think these ideas have a, a deep past in another civilization. We just think we invented everything for the first time, whether it be the discovery of the circulation of the body, which apparently the Bushish discovered only 300 years ago, um, which had actually already been discovered <clears throat> many, many centuries before in the Muslim world. There are many examples of uh, earlier discoveries or inventions, or uh, which we kind of forget about for some reason. Not sure why. Uh, <laughs> I might just say one, one last yeah. point. <clears throat> Something that, you, you know, I, when I was a, a boy, I loved to read history, which is, I guess, unsurprising given that I'm a, it turned out to be a historian. Um, I like to read about the Middle Ages an awful lot. And mm. um, when I looked at the Crusades, only two names stood out. And I'm as Western as I can possibly be, as a person can possibly be. I make no apologies for that. I'm a Western Muslim. I'm not just a Muslim. I have inherited uh, traditions from my own civilization that I'm awfully fond of. 
And one of the things I'm awfully fond of is the fact that as a boy, reading about the Crusades, there were only two names that mattered. Two names. Richard Cordelion, Richard the Lionheart. You'd say that. <laughs> and Saladin. Ah, and the chivalry <clears throat> of both. You know, you look at the books of Walter Scott and those early English novelists talking about a great Islamic general, mm. Saladin, our Saladin, with some sense of awe and admiration. Why? Because he has a code of honor in war, a code of honor. And he got that from his religion. And that's something as a boy I understood. Wow. And I'm as proud of it now as I was when I first heard that name, Salahuddin, um, 50 years ago. I was lovely you mentioned Salahuddin there in conclusion, uh, an honorable man who, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much uh, indeed, Joel, for your uh, expertise and time as always. Uh, I'm sure the viewers, as much as myself, have benefited hugely uh, from this. And uh, I won't mention your voluminous and numerous works again but you, you have a website of course so people can just uh, access just google uh professor joel haywood's name on google and you will a pretty short list you, you, you will find not a short list of references i mean in in pretty short uh, time i should say you will find your website mentioned uh and numerous books available to access uh through the usual platforms as well so um thank you very much joel again for today thank you uh, thank you. It's been such an honor. Salam alaikum. Welcome as salam.